Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Harper Paperbacks, publisher of a new novel called Father Mucker by Greg Oliar. Father Mucker is about a father. It's about a day in the life of a father. It's about a crazy day in the life of a father. Raves Jess Walter, a National Book Award finalist and author of The Financial Lives of the Poets, quote, Father Mucker is all kinds of funny, raucously, wickedly, sweetly, saucily, surprisingly, profanely funny. Oliar has written a wonderful novel capturing in a single manic day the helpless ache of parenthood and the ceaseless flood of popular culture, end quote. Father Mucker by Greg Oliar. Say it with me now. Father Mucker. It's available from Harper Paperbacks, wherever books are sold. Go and get it. It's a book. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Big, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. All right, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. Thank you for being here. I'm Brad Listy, and we've got a great show for you today. Greg Oliar is the guest. Not only is uh, his publisher the sponsor of this show, but he's the guest of the show. He basically owns this program. He's got a new novel coming out called Father Mucker. We're going to talk all about it. But before we get there, I want to discuss a couple of things. First of all, the normal plugs, the website for the show, www.otherpeoplepod.com, all news and info right there. The Twitter, you can follow us on the Twitter, at Other People Pod, and we also have a Facebook presence. The show has its own Facebook presence. Friend us there, like us there, whatever it is that you do at Facebook. Uh, I got a book in the mail the other day. Speaking of books, and uh, it's a book that Tao Lin sent me. Tao is a author. Some of you, and he is an author, an author. Some of you may be familiar with him. Uh, he lives out in Brooklyn. He's barely 30. Is he 30? He's either approaching 30 or he just turned 30. He's published something like five books. He's a very hard worker. He's very good at generating publicity for his books. He's been, uh, you know, toiling ceaselessly in Brooklyn trying to generate. Uh, a literary career, and he's had some success, and he's uh, got another novel coming out. I believe he just got a book deal with Viking. So 
He is also a publisher. He runs a, a, an independent press called Mumu House, M-W, or it's M-U-U-M-U-U House, Mumu House. And uh, he runs this micro press, and he sent me a galley for a book of poetry by Megan Boyle, who is his wife, incidentally. And he's publishing it, and it's called Selected Unpublished Blog Posts of a Mexican Panda Express Employee. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, so right away, you hear that, and you think to yourself, this is, this is going to be different. This is going to be unorthodox. This is not your typical poetry. And so I cracked the book, and I started reading it. I enjoyed what I read. I haven't finished it yet, but I thought to myself, you know, poetry, modern poetry, poetry for adults, it typically isn't funny. I don't know that much funny poetry. I don't see that much funny poetry. I got to be honest, I don't read an un incredible amount of poetry, but I do read more than the average person, I would suspect. And one of the things that strikes me is that when you're a kid, there's lots of funny poetry. One of my first favorite authors was Shel Silverstein. I know I'm not alone here. Shel Silverstein, funny. He's also uh, touching and subversive. He is, I think, for a lot of uh, people, he is their introduction to subversive literature. Where the Sidewalk Ends, that's some subversive literature for kids. And there's humor in it. And I think that as people get older, they stop reading poetry for pleasure as much. I think kids read poetry for pleasure more often than adults. Is that safe to say? It seems that way anyway. And I just wonder, you know, I, I think Bukowski's poetry, probably the most popular poetry among adult readers of poetry, it often has humor in it. So I don't think there's an accident there. I think poetry that includes at least some measure of humor, whether it's sort of uh, slapstick humor or the, you know, the sad, funny, laugh-while-wincing humor that I tend to prefer, uh, it does tend to help the cause. And so Megan Boyle's collection, <clears throat> excuse me, right down to the uh, right down to the title, Selected Unpublished Blog Posts of a Mexican Panda Express Employee, right away you know there's a little bit of humor in there. And I thought I would read one from the book, read an example of a poem from the book to let you know what I'm talking about a little bit. Uh, so here it is. It's an untitled poem. It's simply dated... January 7th, 2009. I am going to only drink lemonade for three days. I'm going to dream of a giant fried chicken. I'm going to write a text message and save it to drafts. I'm going to fall asleep at 3 a.m. with a pillow on my head. My mom is going to watch American Idol. My mom is going to heat up Jenny Craig food. My mom is going to think about getting a job but not get a job. My mom is going to fall asleep on the couch with her mouth half open. My dad is going to smoke weed. My dad is going to make a smoothie with a raw egg in it. My dad is going to want to read a book but skim it instead. My dad is going to turn on his electric blanket and fall asleep with a towel on his face. So that's a poem by Megan Boyle. Her book is unorthodox. Uh, there are some poems that read lyrically uh, like that one. There are others that uh, have a, more of a prose-like structure. But it's worth checking out if you're into experimental, unorthodox poetry by independent presses like Moo Moo House. And speaking of poems and poets that are funny and that are contemporary, I did want to bring up a guy who I really like, who's one of my favorite contemporary poets. His name's Michael Earl Craig. And we featured him on The Nervous Breakdown. That's actually how I got to know uh, who he is. Our poetry editors 
uh, over at the site, over at uh, the Nervous Breakdown. Uh, Uchi Agbuji, Rich Ferguson, Milo Martin, Wendy Chin Tanner. They do a great job of finding talent, of featuring good uh, poets, good poetic talent. And uh, Michael Earl Craig was a featured poet a while back, and I remember reading his poetry and just being like, well, that's it. That's my kind of poetry. The guy has some wit. It's a little bit mysterious, his, his poetry, and it has uh, an odd wisdom to it. So I thought I would read one of his poems just to kind of give you uh, a glimpse of what I'm talking about. This one is called Autobiography. Autobiography by Michael Earl Craig. And I should mention that Michael Earl Craig has this interesting... He does have an interesting biography. He's a farrier. He shoes horses for a living. That's what he does. I think he lives in Montana. He lives somewhere in, in like a remote part of the country. I'm not exactly sure where he lives, but he shoes horses for a living. And he, uh, yeah, it's interesting. He's a poet. Let me read you a poem of his. It's called Autobiography. You could say I rode a tall horse. You could say I rode a long black horse. In reality, I'd never even touched a horse. I drove by them all the time. Horses loose in pastures, horses tied to fences, to trees, horses hobbled, horses running wild along the ditches. And then the ones that simply stood in the rain and baked in the sun, that dreamt with their heads down. As I shot past in my car, it was all I could manage to even glance at a horse. However, I do remember noticing this one horse, a gray horse. He was young and was kept apart from the other horses. He was always pacing and stomping and throwing his head and whinnying and basically always on the brink of exploding chest first through the fence to get over to the other horses. For horses are herd animals. Horses need other horses. Horses easily die of loneliness. This young gray horse seemed to be doing this. He was a colt when I first saw him. And about 32, when I finally pulled over and parked my car, I left the engine running and got out and strode through the tall grass to get to the barbed wire fence where he stood. He was quite old, sway-backed, bad teeth. His eyes were sunk in his head. He no longer moved about, but just stood there in place and sort of bobbed his head in a kind of left-to-right figure eight. It was all he was capable of. I could see this as I approached him in his pasture. All the other horses were in a distant pasture. They looked like specks of black rice on the yellow hillside. I reached the fence. I was finally standing not three feet from this horse. I reached over the top strand of wire. As I lowered my hand, the horse looked at me serenely as if he'd known me all his life. I patted his head. I am one of the world's largest assholes. So that's what I'm talking about. That's a poem by Michael Earl Craig called Autobiography. He's got a couple of collections out if you're into it. I love that stuff. That's my kind of stuff. I don't know why that poem really gets to me. And it makes me sort of laugh. And it makes me wince while laughing. That's all you got to do. That's what, it, that's what it takes for me to get hooked in. Make me laugh and wince. Um, so yeah, funny poetry. It just crossed my mind. It, it made, me, uh, made me think. I think we need more funny poetry for adults. That's just my opinion. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, 
based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So enough with that. I think we should get on with the show. We should get to Greg Oliar, author of Father Mucker. It's his second novel. It's a day in the life of a father. It's a chaotic day in the life of a father. The entire novel takes place in one day. Uh, it's published by Harper Paperbacks. And Greg is a good interview. Enjoy. Um, so how's everything? Uh, good. I'm just, you know, nervous. Why? The book's out in a couple days, so... Yeah, it's about, it's like, it's like pre-childbirth. Yeah, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, uh, yeah. So I'm just nervous. I don't like the review process. Right. Really. Is, are there going to, are there going to be reviews? Uh, I hope so. Okay, so you, you don't know of any, like, like, imminent situations, like the, like, Janet Maslin is, like, thumbing through your book right now or anything? I don't, not that I'm aware of. No. Michi I mean, I, you Michiko know, so, Kakatani. Yeah, no, I, I don't think we're in danger of that, but, I, I mean, I know there's a lot of blog reviews that are coming out and, and stuff like that, so. We're not on yet, are we? What's that? Are we being recorded yet? Oh, you're always being recorded. Oh, okay. I didn't know if we were, I don't know if we if we were speaking, uh, you know, chatting or if we, if we were, you know, recording. No, it's all the same. You know, it's all the same. I'm trying to keep this as informal as possible, but I also want to, okay. uh, I also want to dupe you into revealing the true nature of your feelings. Okay. Well, the true nature of my feelings is nerves. That's the true, the true nature right about now. Are you doing, I mean, are you sleeping yeah. well or are you, uh, like what's the, how does this man uh, manifest? I mean, you know, you can't, you, you know, you have, you have a kid. It's, it's just hard to sleep. I mean, uh, you know, you go to bed late and you wake up early and then you say, oh, I'm going to go to bed early tonight and then you don't and it keeps on going and things wake you up in the night and the cat is loud. Like he's, he's been ignoring me all morning and he's here right now, of course, as loud as possible and uh, distracting my attention because that's what cats do. Um, See, so yeah, I'm a little tired and, and uh, you know, mostly just nervous. I'm excited, but I'm, I'm nervous. Okay. Uh, you know, the reviews that are like get, getting reviews is like, it, it, you know, you, you, you want them, of course. I mean, you need them that you're, you're, uh, spreading the word sort of depends on them. You're, you're yet, breaking up, you're breaking up a little bit. Is your connection good? Uh, can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, you just sort of, uh, hope that they're going to be okay, but, um, I hope that you're going to get them. And then they come out, and you're nervous about them. You know, um, it's not like you know you go around and ask people for money, and they give you money, and you walk away happy. I mean, you you basically have you beg, or you have your publicist beg somebody to 
review and then you know the review could be good or it could not be good or or whatever well, um, and what's funny is that like when you know if you get a bad review people are like oh fuck it doesn't matter that, that you know who cares about the new york times anyway you know and then right yeah if, if it's if it's good if it's good it's like the new york Times. i mean this is huge the new york times is huge you can't do better than you know it just depends it's right like, right and, and i don't think i mean tell me if this is true uh any writer if you get a good review like the, there's like an explosion inside of you. You're so excited about it. And then if you get a bad review, uh, you tend to feel it. I mean, is it possible? I guess there are some writers out there who have like an, a level of emotional discipline that allows them to be unaffected either way, which I think is probably the same procedure. That's the same way of approaching. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I don't think that anybody can really, Anybody who's sensitive enough to, to humanity to be a, a writer in the first place is not going to have the, the powers of detachment to, it, to be able not to be affected by things. But I think it goes beyond that. It's not just a bad review. I, I mean, I, 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 uh, I was reading this Rolling Stone piece about Larry David, and he was in New York, and uh, he was at the Yankee game, and they showed a picture of him at the Yankee game, and everybody like gave him a standing ovation, and you know there were thousands and thousands of people cheering him on and, you know, uh, praising him, basically. And then uh, as he was leaving or going to his hotel, someone shouted out of the cab, you suck, Larry. And the, the guy said, you know, that's all he could, he could think about after that. He had forgotten about the people cheering and everything else. All he could think of was this one guy saying, you suck. You know? I love so it. even if you get a good review, you know, you sort of, there's, if there's one tiny thing in there that, that, that gets under your skin, that makes you crazy too so i love larry, uh, David. larry david's the best this season has been tremendous hasn't yeah, it yeah i no. mean it's, it's like must watch i mean i'm not even an appointment television person but i tivo that and always watch it i mean the palestinian chicken i mean who you know who saw that coming that this this late in the game for that show and for his career he would be this he would say it's almost like he is juicing just like in the episode you know like he's comic comically juicing um you know, because I was always a little lukewarm about the show before. It just it made me uneasy or uncomfortable, and now he can just sort of, you know, he's just embracing his inner dick, and it it, it just makes everything more fun. Yeah, you know, he doesn't feel like he has to like apologize to Cheryl or whatever. He could just walk around and be a dick, and it's great. Yeah, I mean, he what the uh, man the man is in his sixties, is he not? I mean, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I mean, a sitcom star who would have thunk it, but. Uh, but back to the book, I want to talk because this is an interesting moment to be talking with you, to be talking with any writer. Your second novel, Father Mucker, uh, is due out, what, on October 4th? October 4th, 10-4. Okay, so just like any, you know, it's imminent. It's imminent. We're just days away yeah. from Harper Paperbacks in trade paperback, correct? Yes. So you're nervous. You're, you're not sleeping as well as you maybe could. Some of that has to do with the cat. Some of that has to do with the kids. Some of it has to do with the book. Uh, right. You're waiting on reviews. And then what, what else goes into this preparation process? Like, what are you about to do? Uh, well, I have a lot of events coming up, you know, which are going to be a lot of fun and they always are. Um, I'm going to Brooklyn on the, on Tuesday with the fourth, uh, and doing the large hearted lit series reading at, at, at the, at the word, um, in Greenpoint, and I get to meet uh, David Gutowski, who's you know large-hearted boy uh, who I've never met before, and uh, so I'm doing that. And then I have uh, have something in New Paltz where I live on the Friday. I'm going to New Jersey on Saturday, and uh, I'm at KGB back in the city on Sunday. Um, so I've got a big 
first week of events. I've got like an Evisonian week first week of events. This is like the third, uh, this is like the third time in this uh, in this podcast that Evison's energy level has been brought up. Uh, I, t- <laughs> I talked about it with I think I talked about it with him. I talked about it with Ron Curry, and now I'm talking about it with you. You know, he's well. I I, I remember I was I started planning all these events months and months ago, uh, back really when West of Here came out or was about to come out, and I, w- I was looking at his page, try his events page, being like, okay, what's he doing? Where's he going? I think he's how ju- many places I think he's is he juicing. Going? He's juicing for sure. We're gonna find out that we're, we're gonna find out that Evison's on human growth hormone. That's gonna be the <laughs> it's gonna be the big scandal. It will, you know. I, <laughs> well, it's working, you know. If that's what it takes, get me some. No, I just I I did have a uh, you know I mentioned this and uh, and something I wrote for the nervous breakdown, but I did have an idea for a book uh, or some sort of memoir, and I think somebody's actually done this book where they take steroids and performance enhancing drugs and i was going to call it creative reuter uh (laughs) i still might do that there's anybody out there who wants to buy that let me know uh so events in new york area new york city brooklyn new paltz and then uh are you you're venturing out into the into the country a little bit I just, you know, just so I was in Baltimore a couple weeks ago with uh, at, at that great five ten reading series um, that uh, Michael Kimball and Jed Mikowski do, and uh, you know Jessica Blau was there, and um, you know that's a great uh, group of people. Just really was a nice, well-attended event, and you know a lot of fun. Um, but mostly, and I have something in Woodstock later in the month, and I'm going to this event called Club Red R E A D, which I read as Club Reed for the longest time, and then finally I, I figured out the cleverness of the pun, uh, which is this uh, this sort of reader's retreat, they're calling it, at this uh, resort in in um, sort of the in rural Virginia, in this lake. Um, and there's a bunch of writers going, including Jessica and Susan Henderson um, in the TNB universe. And uh, a bunch of readers and booksellers and bloggers will be there. We'll all kind of hang out and get together for the weekend. So I've got that coming up too, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that sounds fun. Mm-hmm. So um, this is your second novel, and uh, I'm curious to know: is it any different? Do you feel any different than you did with the first one? Is, is or do you love all your children just the same? Is it that kind of thing? No, this is this this is a, a totally different book. The first book was. I wrote it in, in, in many incarnations over many years, and it was really nothing more than, uh, you know, a plot that I thought was good, and I tried to do it uh, in the best possible way that I could, um, in the most interesting way that I could, you know, to render the plot. Um, you know, kind of almost uh, this idea that, that I had, that some friends of mine and I had in college, that you kind of give A-list treatment to a B-list uh you know, subject or kind of thing, like A movie treatment to a B movie subject. Um, and I, that was really what I was trying to do with, uh, with the first book, which is you called, know, which is called totally killer, which is called totally killer. And, you know, I, I started writing it around the time that the firm came out and I thought, well, let's see, you know, if I could do something like this and, and, and make it, you know, more literary, you know, is it possible to do that? And, uh, let's see if, you know, if I could do it, it's almost like a really long exercise that took 15 years. Uh, there's a writing prompt for you. Uh, and the, the, the new book is really much closer to home. I mean, I'm writing about, you know, things that I know really well. And, uh, you know, the characters are not 
exactly the same as me and, and my family and stuff like that. But there's certainly a lot of my experiences bleed into it. And, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a better book. I think it's, it's a more ambitious book. And I, and I, I, you know, by, by not having the, um, you know, the, the, the plot stuff, by not making it quite as plot driven, not relying on that, uh, to propel everybody along. I'm, you know, it's a, it's a little bit harder for me to, um, yeah, I'm relying on my voice more, I guess, um, relying on it to keep people interested. Um, because it's, the book is all set in one day and, you know, from a plot standpoint, there's not that much that you can do with that. Um, you know, you're, you're limited by the, the time frame of things. So, are you, are you doing, uh, you any, know, are you doing lots of flashback? I mean, if the, if the whole book takes place over the course of one day, I mean, are you jumping out of time and like flashing back and, and diving there's a couple of, of, of sort of expository things, but mostly no, I mean, you know, there, it, it, it's what, what I was trying to do is just sort of channel this guy's uh, inner monologue, um, his interior monologue. Uh, you know, when you're with kids all day, um, and I was never really quite in the situation that he's in because, uh, you know, my wife Stephanie was was home with me a lot too, and we, you know, we shared a lot of the stuff and and this and that, and the, the character in the book is really on his own, because his wife has been gone for five days, which would just be brutal in real life. By the fifth day of that, you'd, you'd be going nuts, um, <laughs> no matter who you were, you know, male, female, mother, father, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, just you just need a little bit of a break. And, um, you know, so we weren't in, I was never in that exact position, but I, when you spend a lot of time with little kids, um, especially like little Pre, you know, preschool or pre-preschool age kids. Uh, there's so much you have to watch what you say and what you do and how you act and everything just sort of gets repressed and it, it just winds up in your head and you have these crazy thoughts um, often. And I, I think that, you know, a, a full-time parent has probably one of the richer interior monologues going um, in that they, they're thinking all these things constantly and they can't really get it out, you know, because the kids won't understand or shouldn't know, and nobody else really quite gets what, what they're talking about. Um, you know, if you try to talk to your friends who don't have kids about what it's like to, you know, this, this really parenting moment when some, you know, a kid's diaper explodes in a restaurant or something, they, they, they'll listen to you, but they don't really get it. Um, you know, so you wind up just sort of tamping down on these things and not expressing them. Um, I, I compare it in the book to, to Obama. I mean, I think that, or, you know, it doesn't have to be him. I mean, any president, there's so much that he can't talk about but must be thinking constantly that he has to control what he says all the time. Well, no, I mean, uh, the, the level of control that you see in him, I guess in any politician, but like a, I was thinking about this the other day because we're getting into the primary process and we're getting into the election cycle. And uh, regardless of what one thinks about politics, like just watching – how a presidential campaign unfolds in the modern era and like what it requires of a person and how it, there, I don't, I don't think there's any way to go through that process and not be exposed for like who you really are. And if that means like, you know, I think we, I don't know, I, I don't want to get off on a political uh, rant or whatever, but it's just the level of scrutiny is so intense and the repeated, uh, the, you know, the, the constant analysis and the constant, uh, life under the mic yeah the constant judgment yeah. and life under the microscope like i don't think anybody can go through that and not be exposed and you know, obama just seems to have like this unbelievable level of control you know 
Well, control and detachment, and and it works. It, it it works both ways with him. I mean, I think, you know, we on the left want him to like, you know, we want him to have that moment like Sam Jackson and Snakes on the Plane. You know, I don't know if you saw that, but we want him to be like, I have had it with these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane, Boner or Boehner. I'm talking to you. You know, we want everybody wants. That's what we want, right. and it's just not going to happen because of the same qualities that allowed him to survive this process and, 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 and excel in it under the microscope are the ones that are preventing him from doing that. So it's a flip side. Somebody just wrote a piece, I can't remember where I read it about this, that it's kind of a problem that people, good people won't run because of their families and they don't want the exposure. Even if they don't have anything to hide necessarily, they're just uncomfortable with it. And therefore, what, what we wind up getting is like Rick Perry who uh, and, and, and Bachman and Palin who... Um, you know, they're, they're not, they're just not smart. I mean, compared to those guys, George Bush looks like a, like, like a Rhodes scholar. I mean, <laughs> it's really, you know, and I, I don't think that Bush is, is dumb by the way, for the record. I, I, uh, I don't think he presents well and I think he's, you know, he's got his issues, but he's not a moron, but Rick Perry, I don't know. I mean, I, why do we want to, why would anybody on any side of the fence want someone that deficient of intellect to, to have the keys to the nuclear, you know, football. Why would we want that? I just, I don't understand. Yeah. Um, you know, and the same with Palin, but, uh, and or, you know, that Bachman. works on both sides of it. I don't, you know, if you're going to get a Republican, find a smart one, please just find one we can trust. That's all I ask. Um, but it doesn't seem, you know, yeah, it doesn't, I mean, you know, we're getting off into, into politics world, but it doesn't seem like, uh, you know, I feel like a guy like John Huntsman seems like he's got some, some rationality to him and some intellect, and they don't want anything to do with that guy. No, no, uh, and of course now they're doing the they're playing to the base, and I you know maybe these guys are are playing it up a little bit. Uh, I hope, but uh, I think at the end of the day it's going to be Mitt anyway. But uh, you know I guess time will tell. But I talk about I, I cover politics a little bit in the book anyway. I mean um, the book is set in New Paltz where I live, which is this is a very very. Uh, liberal left-leaning place um one of the reasons we moved here is because our mayor he's now our mayor again but uh before we moved here in the in the 90s he was the mayor jason west was doing uh gay marriages at the village hall in new paltz this when it was illegal and uh you know the the, the attorney state's attorney general charges it was this whole you know this national news story and we were sitting in the city thinking we've got, we really want to get out of here, but where do we go where we're going to be comfortable? Um, and we said, well, my God, this place is, you know, if they're going to do gay weddings at Village Hall, it's, you know, there's going to be enough liberals there that it's going to be okay for us. So, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, we're right, you know, we're right up the road from Woodstock. And, and uh, I, <laughs> well, I, in doing the research for the book, I looked at the election returns uh, for the, the, the last election, the 08 election, the McCain-Obama and uh, there's some I, 75% or 80% of the people in New Paltz voted for Obama um, or, you know, or people even more left wing than, than Obama. And I looked at, at the Woodstock returns and there's like 600 people there, 550 or something voted for McCain. And I'm thinking, why do you live in Woodstock? You know, <laughs> move. Do you know where you are? <laughs> That's fascinating. Now you do, though, I mean, just to tie all this back into your work, you do... Uh a lot of pop culture politics like you seem to you know you seem to really have 
uh, a good awareness of that stuff and you find ways to tie it into your creative work. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's, that's fair. I mean, I think it's, it's something that I'm known for. Certainly at, at TNB, I try to, you know, write these pop culture pieces and, and in the book, I think it's, it, it, it's, uh, you know, he, it, it ties into his, this guy's life in, in the sense that he, he has very few outlets. You know, he doesn't talk to adults during the day. So he passes his time by, you know, reading us weekly and, and, and memorizing this ridiculous, useless information, um, you know, concerning who Ashley Simpson Wentz is married to and what their kids' names are and uh, stuff like that that just, you know, isn't really very important in the big picture. But I think people... Uh, you know that 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 kind of thing is obviously popular. Well, yeah. Let's um, you know, stop. I want to stop. I want to stop you here for a second because I I look at Us Weekly and I read it and, and there is something brilliant about it because you devour it. What the hell? Have, I mean, like just the the way they present the photos. Well, the I'll tell you. I'll tell you this: the writing Us Weekly is really good. Um, whoever copy edits it and does the, it's definitely a well written magazine. Um, it, it, you know, when you, when you, sometimes you see these, and, and I know you and I share this, Brad, that we deplore bad copy editing and grammatical mistakes and stuff like that. And that magazine is never like that. It's always neat uh, from a, from a grammatical standpoint and, and a, and a cleverness standpoint. It's very, very well done all the time. Um, I, I've read, you know, it, they can be writing about so the, the, the topic that they cover might be just beyond banal but the way that they go about doing it is is usually pretty smart so i think you start with that and uh you know you go from there i mean they have their little things that they do and um i actually stopped subscribing to it because uh i think i got i just got tired of like the teen moms and the cover it wasn't because i was tired of the of the pop culture i think i just got tired of the people that they were talking about more than anything else um you know, now that now that Jennifer Aniston is married, and uh, is she know, married? There's some new development. Yeah, and I didn't even know. That's how out of touch I am. You, you know, you, this, you, it falls away. Now that the kids are older and we're in school and our social life is more normalized, I, I become less aware of of Jennifer Aniston's marital status. I didn't wait. So, she got married. Apparently. Wow. Yeah, the, and now Angelina wants to steal her new man, and Brad did something. <laughs> um, you know, that's another reason I liked it, too, through Us Weekly. Every time it says something about Brad and Angelina, I always imagine you, Brad, you know, <laughs> and it would make me giggle. <laughs> that's comforting. So, uh, okay, so the new book, the reviews, the book tour. Let's talk a little bit. I want to hear a little bit about uh, how you became a writer. Like, where did it where did it start? Have you always been? Did you come to it late? Is this something you knew you were going to do since you were four? Well, I mean, I knew I wanted to do something creative and, uh, you know, probably something involving writing. I mean, which form of writing I think took a while to determine. Um, you know, I think I started off doing, uh, I started off writing songs and song lyrics, you know, in high school and stuff like that. And, uh, when it became evident that I was not going to be a rock star, um, <laughs> which, you know, fortunately I, I learned, I, I, dis I discovered that very early on um, in college, then I, you know, sort of turned to other things, and I wrote a lot of really terrible poetry, which I think everyone does, every writer does when they're like 20, um, and, uh, you know, I started to write screenplays, and uh, 
at some point, it struck me that the the number, you know, to, in order to be successful as a screenwriter, you had to go to L.A. and live there, uh, which I didn't want to do at that time. And there was just so, you know, the the way that you're going to succeed is that you're going to sell a, a script or option a script to somebody who may never make it, so uh, it might sit in a drawer somewhere forever, uh, or they might make it and totally, you know, take it apart. Um, and I, I didn't, I was uncomfortable with that. I, I, I wanted to, you know, to have the final say on what, what was going to be presented to the world under my name. And I thought, well, you know, maybe that's not the right thing to do. And I, I thought that, um, it's of course terribly difficult to write a really good screenplay, but the, the physical act or, or the technical act of just writing 120 mostly blank pages is not that rigorous. I mean, it is possible to write a screenplay in a couple of weeks, I wrote one once in a week just to see if I can do it. And uh, therefore, you have people who, who you know, aren't as dedicated cranking out these screenplays, and there's just a lot more of them in circulation, I think. Um, whereas, you know, to write a novel is, is quite an undertaking. And uh, even to write a bad novel, it's going to, you need to have a, a certain amount of, of discipline just to be able to finish it. Um, and I figured, well, I know I have the discipline, so I might as, you know, I think maybe I'll do that and... Uh, you know, there'll be fewer of them. I thought. So, so and talk about talk about the discipline. I mean, like, what, what, where do you what do you mean when you say I know I have the discipline? Like, how do you work? Are you like an up at the crack of dawn every single day kind of writer, or like? Well, no. I mean, I would like to be. I mean, I I think that it sort of goes in fits and starts, and it depends on where in the cycle I am with things. Uh, and of course, now with kids, it, it, you know that that creates a whole new, uh, you know hurdle to get over but uh I, I think if i'm working on something it just you know i i've basically been working on a project some project or other since i was like in third grade i think there's just it just depends on what the projects are i finish one and i start another one and then that's that's always how i've been um you know they used to be albums and now they're books and uh you know and there were other things in between and, and i might write you know something shorter in between just to um you know, keep my keep up my chops, I guess, which is where the, the you know TMB comes in. But you know, I know what I'm going to do generally, and I just do it, and I just work at it in the way that I have to until it's done. I guess that doesn't really answer the question. It's not a day to day thing necessarily. It's more like, okay, well, I'm in this phase now, and I'm going to have to do this now, and then in another month, I'm going to have more free time, and that's when I'll do that. You know. So where do you think uh, it where do you think it comes from? Like, have you always been like a really driven person, or is this like divine inspiration? Or are you a high achiever? Like, how how do you define that? Like, where do you think it comes from? Um, I don't know. I, I think I've just, I've just always been this way. Um, there's certainly there are people that are, that write a lot more than I do. I'm not. Uh, you know, I, I read that. I think Joyce Carol Oates is, is just she's she can't literally can't stop herself from writing all the time. So she has all these short stories all the time that she has to find outlets for. And I'm not like that by any means. I have, you know, I don't work a lot. There are many, many, many times when I'm not working. But uh, I don't know. I just have this this compulsion to, to finish the projects that I start, even if they wind up being not worthwhile. Although, in some way, every project is worthwhile. Um, do you think that, you do you think that the, uh, the urge to write creatively is, you know, and the, the compulsion is some sort of form of mental illness. And I mean, I mean that like half jokingly, but half seriously, like 
people who are, are compelled to write, particularly considering the rigors involved and uh, quite often the lack of reward on the back end, uh, I mean, do you have to be a little bit kooky to do this, or do you think that that's not accurate? I don't know. I, I, I don't think kooky or, or mentally ill is the right word. I, I, it doesn't make me unhappy to do it. I mean, it, 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 it's hard, but it's not, it's not unrewarding. Um, you know, I, or, I, or maybe I, uh, actually, let me, let me, let me stop for a second just to make sure that there's some clarity here. Like, uh, I, I want to say I'm, I'm quoting Vaughn again, and maybe he was, you know, being wry and, and half serious when he said it, but maybe like, uh, the work itself, you know, isn't necessarily kooky or doing the work itself isn't necessarily a sign of mental illness, but rather it's like a way of working through your stuff. It's a way of processing. Well, I, I guess that's part of it. I mean, I had a really good professor in college who said he, he taught this playwriting class and he said, you know, what you want to do with a play is you want to ask a question that you yourself don't know the answer to. And, you know, the play is the way that you'll, figure out the answer to that question and sort of work through it that way. So it doesn't have to be worked through. Like I, I remember you, you and, uh, and Evison were talking about this, like there's some sort of, you know, bad thing happened or this or that. And, you know, we have to work through it. And um, I think there are certainly people that, that use that as, as, as a form of therapy, but that isn't how I, that's not me. I mean, I'm pretty normal. I think as, as things go, um, everybody's got their shit, of course, but uh, it's not like I have some terrible thing that happened that I have to get out uh, by any means. I just feel, uh, I don't know, I feel Orwell said, um, you know, that one of the things that writers have in common uh, is that they have this tendency to notice things that other people don't notice. And I think I, I definitely have that tendency, and the urge that I have to, to write it down and get it out so that other people can read it is, I think, very similar to the urge that somebody might have in a classroom when the teacher asks a question and you raise your hand, you just want to, you just want to blurt the answer out. Um, were you, you, know, the, were it, you that kid? Were you the kid who was answering um, questions? It depended, it, depending on what class it was, you know, in, in biology, I hid in the back, but uh, I could be, yeah. And certainly in college, we were, you know, doing discussions on things that I was interested in or had read. I definitely was involved and engaged in, uh, in, in discussions and I like to talk and, um, and talk through stuff, you know, because I learn a lot when I talk, I think. Um, something that I've learned even in teaching this class that I'm teaching now, that I can bring a book in there and talk about it, and I usually learn something myself that I didn't realize just by talking through it in class to to the students, you know. Yeah, no, I found that too. I mean, you're, you're teaching at the college level? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, me too. I, 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 found that, uh, I found that I learned something too. You know, it's just, it's weird. You're, you're the teacher, but you're also sort of a student. yeah. It's it's it works both ways and, and, and makes it you know sort of rewarding. Um, but getting back to your your point about the mental illness, I mean, I there's this long and uh, storied sort of idea that writers have to be depressives or they have to be you know on drugs or drunk or whatever. And uh, I don't I don't necessarily hold with that. I mean, I think that uh, you know we, we Shakespeare was neither drunk nor depressive. <laughs> fucking Shakespeare, you know, so it can be done to, to, to you know, have things to say and to do we, wait, do we know, do we know that for sure that he was relatively stable? Are we clear I think so. That? I mean, it, we don't know, you know, what we know about him. But yeah, as far as we know, I mean, he had his amorous sides and stuff like that. But as a, as a personality, I think he was fine. You know, there, he wasn't like running around, you know, tipsy and this and that. He, 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 you know, he was a good businessman and, 
had a lot of real estate holdings and this and that. I mean, he seemed to be pretty solid. Well, yeah. it's funny. It's funny because I just read uh, I just read this oral biography of Hunter S. Thompson called Gonzo. Yeah, and uh, it was compiled by uh, Yan Wenner and, and then another uh, junior, not junior editor, another editor at Rolling Stone. But basically, it's just a bunch of friends talking about Hunter Thompson, and uh, you know, he he certainly had his genius and he had uh, his own way of managing his life. But I mean, you you re- you know, you hear these anecdotes, you read these anecdotes uh, repeatedly, and like the guy genuinely was. Uh, crazy. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. And sometimes in the best possible way. You know, I'm a huge fan of his as a as a writer of, uh, you know, a writer of of humor. I think he's one of the best humorists that America's ever produced. But he he was, uh, you know, he was nuts. You know, he was nuts. Some of the stuff that he did, you just can't even believe. And the way that he lived, you know, the way that he lived, and the fact that he lived as long as he did, uh, is just sort of shocking. It's like. Uh, truth is stranger than fiction. Like the myth with him is is pretty close to reality in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I think you know that's part of his, you know, it's part of his image too, and part of what makes him popular. I think is that is that sort of I you know the the, the marrying the work with the the image. Well, he got. Tra- um, I think he got trapped in it. You know, I think he got trapped in it, and it happened years ago. I mean, as far as I read, I mean, that's kind of what the book insinuates. And that's what people say, you know, who knew him is that like, as you know, as, as early as like the late seventies, uh, it was already happening where he kind of felt like a, an obligation to be Raul Duke, you know, with people who were hanging around him, they wanted that sort of experience. And then I think you fry yourself, you do that many drugs. And it just, I think it really does affect your ability to write. And I think, uh, I was watching a documentary about Ken Kesey, not too long ago, there's a guy uh, who just made a movie, and I'm forgetting his name, but he made a movie about the uh, the Merry Pranksters and their bus trip across America in, I believe it was 1964. And Kesey really wrote two books. And then, you know, you, some people sort of posit that he did so much acid and other stuff that it sort of, you know, uh, destroyed his ability to work you know, or to work effectively. I don't know how true that is, but that's, you know, I, it's funny you mentioned, I don't know a lot about these guys. I don't, I don't, it actually, the whole thing sort of turns me off in a lot of ways. And you know, once people start talking about drugs for play, I, I, I tune out. But I remember reading a quote from Keithy and him saying, I think it was him. Um, and him saying, uh, you know, you, you can, you only have, I'm going to butcher the quote, but you know, you can, you can, uh, you can write a book whenever you want, but you can only raise a family at a very specific time. And, um, you know, so he, I think, had a family and was pretty aware of that. And uh, I think that, that at least initially or uh, motivated him for, for sort of bowing out of all that stuff. Um, although, you know, maybe family was, was some sort of hippie drug code for acid. I don't know. Um, you know <laughs> so wait, now, did you, did you not do, did you do a lot of drugs when you were younger? None at all? Some here and there? Um, no, I'm not. I'm really not a... Uh, uh, no, I smoke, I've smoked pot a couple of times and usually it just makes me tired and, and, uh, you know, and that's about it. I mean, it, 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 uh, and, and cough so much that I, it, you know, any sort of pleasure that you can be, that can be gained for it is completely erased by the, you know, tuberculosis like attack that I have. So, <laughs> um, and I've never, I don't know, I've always been too terrified, I think, to try anything else and. You know, it's too late now for me, but... Um, sure, you missed your window. Yeah, the window's closed, and I'm happy to, you know, I'm happy to let other people, you know, go that route, but, uh, 
you know, for me, I just, I was just never really interested in that. I mean, I, you know, where, where I went to school uh, at Georgetown was more of a drinking culture. I think if I had gone to a, a different school, maybe I would, you know, have had different experiences. But, you know, where I went, people just really just drank, and that was it um, for the most part, at least the people that I hung out with. So, um, so you know. You, so, what I, you're I, saying, so what you're saying is that you're an alcoholic? Is that it? No, I, you know, I had my limits with that too. I mean, you know, that, uh, that was fun. And now it's just, you know, every once in a while, uh, you know, I'll, I'll drink a little bit, but I, you know, if, if I didn't drink again for the, you know, forever, I would be fine with it. It's not, I can really take it or leave it at this point. Um, you know, it's just not, I, I'm always acutely aware when I'm drinking, uh, uh, no matter how much I am that, um, you know, the, I, I, that I don't want to be hung over. So it's almost like I hate the hangover so much that it that it uh, influences the the enjoyment that I can get out of out of the liquor. You know, this all goes back to what we were talking about with the reviews. You know, even the good reviews, I can't. <laughs> it's the same idea. It's like yeah, but yeah, I mean, you, you just you seem that you seem like you're in pretty good control of your situation. I mean, as far as writers go, I mean, I think like um, you seem pretty you know well adjusted and and. Uh, able to manage things you get your work done i don't know i mean it's it's, it's admirable and i'm curious to know uh talking you know as we talked about uh hunter thompson and ken kesey and uh i started to think about you know your particular writing and who influenced it i mean who are the writers that were really big for you um god it's you know again it goes through there's various points i mean uh i really like hemingway especially the sun also rises I like, you know, Gatsby, of course, um, more of those two books than the, than the rest of the body of work by either one of those guys. But, uh, but those two books, I think everybody goes through a Salinger phase. I'm a big Nabokov fan. I know his name is pronounced Nabokov, but I, I don't care. I'm American and it's Nabokov because that's how Sting says it in that stupid song. <laughs> so that's how it's going to be. Um, you know, and, uh, I, I went through, you know, I, I, I liked all of the, the sort of Gen X stuff when I was, you know, in college, uh, Braced and Ellis and the Douglas Copeland books and uh, Donna Tart book, um, you know, those things sort of had a, a pretty big impact on how I thought about stuff. Um, Bright Lake's Big City, which I think sort of informed Totally Killer a lot. Um, and then, you know, lately it's just been, I just, it's just different kinds of things. I read a lot of nonfiction. I read a lot of economics books for some reason. Um, and, uh, wait, what do you mean economics books? Like, what do you, I like to read books about economics and history and stuff like that. Um, I read this, this really great biography of, uh, Rockefeller, um, called Titan, which is awesome. Uh, you know, and learned a lot about that. And I don't know. I think it's, I I don't understand economics completely. I can't quite wrap my brain around it, but I want to, I want to be able to try. I feel like, if I could figure out a couple of basic things, I could, I could know a lot more about the way that the world works. You know, um, I think that they don't teach economics in school for some sort of nefarious reason. Uh, you know, it's like they don't want everybody knowing exactly how it works. Right. Well, then the same thing. I feel like same thing with history. I mean, I, I mean, obviously, I had history classes in high school, but I feel like it's undertaught. I feel like people have. Uh, deficient knowledge of our of our history you know both in terms of national history and then global history or whatever but 
seems like I don't know. I, I'm constantly reading history too for that reason, trying to get a sense of where we were and where we are and all that all that sort of thing. Well, in school they kind of hit the big points. You know, here's the Revolutionary War. Here are the battles. You know, here are the key figures. This and that. But the most of the of the issues that are that are current now, most of the problems that we have in the country, stem from the the period after the Civil War, before World War One, which is basically you know the rise of labor and and the presidencies of like Cleveland and McKinley. The, basically, the boring stuff. We weren't fighting any wars. We were trying to you know integrate. It was a big sort of almost if you're in, in uh, you know a junior in high school, a really boring time. Um, but that's when all the stuff happened. I mean, that's, that's when the corporations started to rise and, and, and start to accrue this enormous power, and that's when the government was slow to check that power. Um, so people that, that run around saying we should have smaller government, smaller government, I say you need to read history books about that period. You know, just read the history books and then get back to me on, on you know, how you feel about that because the corporations are, um, you know, they're, they're inherently... I don't want to say evil, but they don't care about people, and the government does. So the only thing big enough to to combat a corporation is the government. So if you're going to shrink the government, it's like saying, you know, there's Vader and there's the Jedi, and these Tea Party people are running around saying, fuck the Jedi. You know, that's basically what their platform is. I, 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 it, to me, it's it's very clear. I don't, I don't understand why anyone wouldn't understand that unless they... Uh, you know, just didn't pay attention to these things, which clearly by the some of the what they discussed during these debates is the case. Um, you know, Perry and, and Bachman in particular seem to have absolutely no no idea what has gone on in the, in the history of the country. So, who's going to win? Um, what do you think is going to happen? Can you forecast this? Yeah, I mean, Romney Romney is going to is going to get the nomination. I think that he's the only person in that in that group that's that that's uh, worthy of, of, of some sort of national scrutiny. I mean, right now, they're just playing to the base, the Republicans are, and Bachman and Perry and, uh, you know, the, the more extreme Tea Party-esque people really appeal to this charged base. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, I think Romney's going to be the guy. I think he's the most, the most electable in a general way. Um, I think Perry is just too, you know, we've had it with Dopey Texans, um, you know, and the, there's just too many holes in the armor already for, with the other people. And I think, you know, somebody like Huntsman uh, would be good, but I don't think that he has the whatever it is, the je ne sais quoi, to, to really succeed. So I think Romney's the guy to beat. I think when, when the, 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 the dust settles and the smoke clears, it's going to be him. And I think that he's basically the Republican version of Kerry. Um, I think he's tall, I think he's smart, I think he's dull, and I think he's unelectable in the general election, just like Kerry was. Um, and I think you're going to hear the word Mormon an awful lot. The minute that he becomes announces it's going to be Mormon this, Mormon that, and the, you know, the, the, the sort of the evil forces on the left will, will, uh, will do what the evil forces on the right did with, with Obama and, 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 uh, Islam, you know, they try to paint him as a Muslim and, and, uh, on the left, it'll just be all about Romney is a Mormon, Romney is a Mormon, you know, do we trust him, blah, 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 for, you know, fairly or unfairly, uh, and then Obama will win. I, I, I can't see how he's going to not, he's going to lose to one of these people. If they had somebody really good, 
then it would be another story. But I just don't see it. I, I, I just don't see that uh, that there's anybody good. And remember, the election is a long way off. It's another year from now. You know, the the, the presidential election. I mean, six months ago, Obama had record high things, and he just whacked Bin Laden. You know, we forget about this. And the one thing that you can say about Obama is that he always takes the long view. Always. He doesn't ever uh, sacrifice things for some sort of short-term pole jump, especially now. And that, and that he's a really, really good campaigner. Um, you know, he beat Hillary, and Hillary is the toughest opponent he's ever had. And she's certainly tougher than any of these guys. So yeah. I, I see it's going to be Romney and, you know, maybe Pawlenty and uh, Obama, and maybe they'll Maybe they'll replace Biden. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think yeah, I think Biden's going to stick. Who knows? It'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. But it sounds like a pretty good read. I can see the Romney Kerry comparison. You know, there is sort of something dry and boring about both guys. You know, especially on the yeah. campaign trail. So, uh, anyhow, to get back to uh, you know you and writing and your your work and your life and stuff, I'm curious about where uh, where you come from. You're from Jersey. Yes. And like, t- uh, tell from, me, good childhood. It sounds like you had a good childhood, right? You come from. Oh yeah, you know, it was my childhood was great. I mean, I lived in in a town called Madison, uh, which is really a commuter town to New York. Although we never, ever, ever went to New York City when I was a kid. And uh, I'm Italian, and my grandparents grew up, uh, or I grew up. Basically, our house was in the backyard of my grandparents' house. The backyards touched, so I always had a lot of family around, and uh, you know, good. Good town, good schools, um, you know, pretty pretty good experience there. And, uh, and I went to Georgetown for my undergrad. I majored in English, and that was good. Um, you know, I had, I probably should have, or maybe could have gone to a school that was a little more arty, but it wound up being fine for my purposes. I mean, there did you there are it? a lot of arty uh, people there that I met, and you know, we did some some fun things that maybe I wouldn't have been able to do. Well, did more, you quote unquote art school? Did you feel like uh, being at Georgetown? I mean, just just the proximity to Washington and uh, the government, the federal government, and whatnot. Did it, did that color your um, political understanding? I mean, you, you probably do get a, a more political student body at Georgetown than you would say, you know, at uh, you know uh, Georgia or you know any other. Yeah, I mean, it, no, it definitely draws people in, and it, it turned me off if, if, if it did anything. I mean. It, you know, the people that would intern on Capitol Hill, of course, nobody's doing that anymore. They stopped that <laughs> program. But uh, And uh, I was there when Clinton won, um, and Clinton went to Georgetown, so there was much rejoicing, and I went to the inauguration and all that, and that was really fun. Although the three guys that I lived with were uh, not for Clinton. They were they were for, uh, for Bush and, you know, insisted on hanging this Bush, was it quail then? I don't even remember. Uh, sign on the, I get my bushes mixed up now, on our window at the, at the house that we lived in, thus ensuring that no woman would set foot in us. Uh, so they went away for one weekend, and I, I, I tore up the signs, and then girls started to come to our house again. Wow. You want to hear a funny story about Dan Quayle? Yeah. Well, because I spent uh, high school, my high school years in Indiana, and so I was in college. <laughs> I had left Indiana, but I was home for a visit uh, for you know during the summer. It was around July Fourth. It was July Fourth, and so there was a party uh, at some you know house near downtown. It was like a rooftop, watch the fireworks kind of party. And uh, there were two cars I remember, and it was like you know I was in a car. We were following our uh, one of my buddies, 
and he was like, I got to pick up this girl, follow me, and then we'll go to the party. So we're in this car, we're, you know, 19 years old, uh, we're smoking something, and we're driving towards this girl's house, and all of a sudden we're on this driveway, and it's a long driveway, and it's winding back, and we don't know who this is or where we're at, and we get there, and uh, our buddy runs out of his car and goes to the door to ring the doorbell, and then he kind of goes in, and then we're sort of waiting, and so I remember my friend Timmy gets out of the car and starts, like, kicking a hacky sack, because that was something that we did back then. And he's, I think we were like, you know, people were smoking cigarettes. Everyone's just kind of standing out in front of this house and it's like dusk. And, uh, all of a sudden, uh, the door swings open and it's Dan and Marilyn Quayle. And they're like, you know, he's like, hi kids. And we look over and I, I mean, I was just completely stupefied and it was, uh, it was a very odd moment. He was the vice president at the time? No, I mean, this was, I think this was, this would have been Clinton years. This was like, you know. Oh, so it was after. Okay. This was like wow. two years after he had returned to, uh, the, you know. Indiana and was living in uh, suburban Indianapolis and wow uh, yeah I, I had no idea it was a big surprise and I think our buddy sort of set us up but you know my buddy's like kicking a hacky sack and smoking a cigarette and Dan Quayle's front lawn so no that's good well yeah the uh, the closest I got to anybody famous was was uh, my my best friend and roommate uh, intern for another a guy a congressman from Massachusetts and we and he took us to this party and we were. I think I was 18, maybe I, at, at most I was 19. And, uh, you know, we put our, you know, jackets and ties on and went to this party for this congressman. And we're, you know, we're drinking um, with all these Congress people, which is, of course, illegal uh, because we're under, all of us are underage. Uh, so there's the irony of that. And uh, I think I was on maybe my fourth drink and in walks Ted Kennedy. Who, uh, who was on his 14th drink at the time? You know, that, that's that's what no he was sober and i was drunk i'm like i'm drunker than ted kennedy <laughs> uh but the the thing that was amazing the, the guy that we were with who worked for this other massachusetts this democrat from massachusetts as soon as ted kennedy went in there they just started with the jokes you know the oh i went back in the car for the six-pack and mary joe was gone you know like the chappaquiddick jokes it's just, you know re- the guy walks into a party for a Massachusetts Democratic congressman, and he can't escape Chappaquiddick jokes, like, years after the fact. I mean, uh, what must life have been like for him to go somewhere not, where people were not on his side, you know? Yeah. I Actually, I felt really bad for him, um, insofar as I felt anything at all beyond the buzzing in my head. But, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so my so... roommate then, he went on and actually worked for Ted Kennedy and almost killed his dog inadvertently when he was walking the dog and it got loose and ran into the streets, oh. which he did. It wound up not, not happening, but that would have been quite a, uh, you know, quite a, quite an event. I think that would have been, the, would that would have been the end. Time. That would have been the end of the mm-hmm. job. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. So now you were at for Georgetown sure. and I remember you writing about, uh, the fact that you discovered Bradley Cooper, the actor. Yes. So you, yeah, you were... he was, I mean, I bring the I wrote the story up, but he just he had transferred in and, and uh, auditioned for a play that uh, a friend of mine were uh, mine and I were directing, and you know we really put him in. This was the the play was Dangerous Liaisons, and we put him in as the valet to Valmont, um, because we had the guy playing Valmont, and we thought that he was pretty wooden and he wouldn't. Uh, you know, he wouldn't oversell the lines because he had a, like little like jokey joke lines, and we didn't want somebody too funny to try to milk it. And you know, he was good, but he, uh, you would never suspect seeing him at that first audition that he would be a 
movie star, although he's very, very, very good looking in real life. Well, no, I was going to say that. You So you did not sense when you met him, like, this guy's going to be a big star. No. But you did think that, no. he, was, that he was a handsome lad. Yeah. No, he, I mean, he's, he's sort of, you know, uh, there's almost, he's inherently good looking. I mean, there's no, you know, he just sort of is. Uh, and then, it, you know, it sort of got me to thinking, like, when his career was sort of taking off, and it's not like I'm, like, friends with him or anything. He just was in the play and kind of kept to himself. He was nice and everything. Uh, but uh, I remember thinking, you know, how how good-looking must the really, really hot Hollywood people be if Brad Cooper, who's basically the best-looking person I know, can go to Hollywood and just, you know, just be cast in these sort of secondary, you know, dork roles, you know? You know, how good-looking is Clooney well, or somebody so, like, let me ask you this: Did you did you notice like were were women reacting to him? Did you notice that like when he walked into the room, or was there some sort of uh, reaction? Yeah, there's response? yeah. I mean, he you know, but he wasn't. Uh, I, I, and again, I didn't know him well, and he had just come there to school, so it's not like he had a, a you know a lot of friends yet or anything like that. But he, you know, he was very quiet. He wasn't a, a really gregarious person. Uh, at least at first, he was kind of shy and. Um, you know, and I think he 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 lost that. I'm told by the second year at Georgetown, he was a little more sure of himself and confident and everything. But uh, you know, certainly by looking at him, yeah, I mean, he you know, he's a you know, he he definitely had quote unquote movie star looks. Um, you know, and some people are better looking in real life than they are in a show, and and vice versa. Um, you know, it's weird how that is. We had the guy that played Valmont, uh, who was excellent, and he's, you know, he's a handsome guy, but when he was Valmont or when he was in another play that we did, Rope, when he was that guy, he was like maybe 10 times better looking than he was in real life, which is weird. Um, And then some people were the flip. I knew, uh, there's a woman I knew, um, you know, when I first moved to New York who, you know, was very pretty, uh, and then when she was on stage doing something, she just shrunk away to nothingness, and it was almost stunning you know, how, how, how somebody that like tall and, 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 you know, kind of pretty could be so nothing on stage. So it is stage presence is this thing. I don't know. It's, it's just a thing. And some people have it in spades and some people don't. Do you Um, think, do you think that any writers, you know, have it? Do you feel like you have stage presence as a reader when you go to give your readings? Um, yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know if people have it or they develop it. And I, I, I think part of it is that, I mean, uh, you know, I went to see, when I first got to New York, Brady Stanellis did a reading at the Barnes and & Noble, and, and, you know, he definitely had it at the time. This is, you know, a long time ago, and he was sort of at the height of his, I think it was after Informers came out. What was this, at, you know, was but this the Barnes & Noble on Union Square? I can't remember. It was. I, I think that actually that that wasn't there yet. That's how long ago it was. Oh, okay. Um, I think it was on 23rd Street. Um, but he, you know, he certainly gave off this sort of glow or whatever you want to call it and i'm trying to think i was at bea and and uh you know you there's definitely you know some quality emanating from like russell banks you know <laughs> that, that i didn't have <laughs> um so you know i i think a lot of it too you know you develop over time if you're if you're somebody like that who's that good well just practice um, too and then i should ju- i want to jump in because uh Speaking of Brett Easton Ellis, he just read your book, and he tweeted about reading Totally Killer. Is that correct? Yeah, he tweet, he did. Yeah. And so, did um, you did you tweet back at him? Did you say, hey, you know, thanks for reading? Or 
I, I think I did. I did tweet back. I haven't heard back, but yes, I did tweet back. Um, but you know, from from my standpoint, I'm just you know sort of delighted that he is dimly aware of my existence. You know, um, you know, there's certain people that are very influential that that who's. Uh, acknowledgement means more than other people. You know, it's just how how it is. Uh, you know, he's certainly one of those people. So that was that was kind of a cool, a cool thing to have happen for sure. Well, okay. So now, um, just to kind of continue in some sort of uh, haphazard way, your biography, like we mm-hmm. get we get out of Georgetown. You're directing plays. You major in English, and then what? Like, how do you get from there to publishing Totally Killer? Um, well, I moved to, I moved to New York. I, I actually, instead of going abroad, I spent a semester at NYU. Um, it was my own study abroad in, in the States program, right? I sort of withdrew from Georgetown and transferred and then I went back. But, uh, so I was actually in New York city in 1993, which isn't that far off from the time and totally killer. And, uh, you know, being there, I said, well, this is, this is really where it's at. I, I, I had always been sort of afraid of the city growing up, even though we were right near it. You know, I hadn't gone in that many times, and there was something intimidating about it for me. And uh, when I went and lived there at NYU, I, I realized that the thing about New York is that it's so big, and, 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 and it is intimidating. You don't know your way around, and, you know, you want to walk with purpose. And there's, there's so much to know that you really do have to live there for a while before you really get your bearings and can really feel it. it, it it's, uh, I remember when I went there, the first two weeks that I was there, I had a pounding headache like every day. And I think it was because I was just, there was so much information that I had to remember just to be able to get around, you know, where the subways went and this, that, and the other. And there's all these little tricks that you learn and, and, and just stuff you need to know to be able to survive there in a, in a, in a you know, sort of positive way. But I, I, I really was, I, I just said, you know, I have to, I have to move here. This is, you know, this is definitely where it's at. I, I definitely want to be here when I graduate. So, um, I got a job at Young and Rubicam, the advertising agency, but just doing some dumb administrative thing. And, uh, you know, they hired me. So I went and, and, and that was it. I just, you know, I was there for years and I wound up, I wrote, uh, I wrote practice SAT questions for Kaplan for a year, um, which is why, I, I know as many big words as, as I do, and uh, then I I worked at the Associated Press in HR for I think seven years, seven and a half years, something like that. And uh, you know, since then I've just um, you know kind of been freelancing and doing web stuff and this and that. And we were able to teaching, uh, yeah, teaching. And you know, I got married, of course, to Stephanie and. Uh, we have two kids and we moved to New Paltz and, you know, we've been here since, um, pretty much with a little, we went back to New Jersey last year for a brief time, but, um, you know, now we're, we're in this house that we moved into in, uh, I guess in July and we're, you know, pretty confident that this is where we want to remain, uh, you know, for the duration. So, which is a nice feeling. Yeah. Uh, it's really the first time in my life that I've ever lived exactly where I want to be. Um, I've always been sort of not quite where I want to be, um, you know, just like a block away or, you know, right city, wrong neighborhood, yeah. right neighborhood, wrong apartment, that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, for me, this is like, this is great. Um, just, we're just very happy here. So, uh, and you know, the book is set in New Paltz, so I'm happy to be living in New Paltz when the book comes out. 
And we're talking fa- we're talking Father Mucker, just to remind people. Yeah. It's called Father right. Mucker. So where, where does Father Mucker come from? Where does that word originate? Well, um, I, you know, I was going to do a blog when Dominic was a baby. This is now, this would have been about six years ago. Um, just on little, like, funny, fathery type things. And I don't know, I came up with the idea of the name. And I don't remember why or how I thought of it. It just sort of came to me. And then I decided not to do that and, and you know, turn my attention to other things. And when I decided to work on this book, which is about the stay-at-home dad, I remembered that I had thought of that title for the blog. And I said, well, that would be, you know, that's really a perfect title for the book, so I should I should use it. And um, it sort of suggests, you know, it suggests, I think, what the book is about, that it's, you know, about a stay-at-home dad and that, it's it, it sort of see the, the muck in there sort of suggests that everything is all mucked up. Um, I think the gender the gender dynamics are mucked up and um, you know are upside down and topsy turvy and of course it's fun that it's uh, sort of a euphemism for motherfucker. Sure. Um, which I was forced to say when I was in France to explain to people there what the title meant. Well, wait. Let's. This is what I want. I did want to talk about this. For so, totally killer. Your first novel was published in the French, correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, by Gallmeister. By by who? Uh, Gallmeister is the name of the of the place, and they're great. They're just tremendous people. Um, it's a very small uh, company. They think they do eight books a year, and they do them like they just do them you know what was and I mean, was it called totally killer in french is that what it was also it called? was they were they were contemplating changing it but they they decided to just go with totally killer <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, you went and you went on a book tour in france yes that, so yeah. you, so give give us this story you fly over to france they fly you over well i i had said you know way back when we got the deal you know i said look i i can speak french a little so if you want me to come over i'll come you know thinking, you know, that first of all, that we would pay for it, and Stephanie and I would go, you know, stay somewhere, I'd go to a bookstore or two and come home, you know, and that's kind of what I had in my mind, because that's really how how book tours operate here, at least, you know, in the the level that I'm used to, and they basically just ran with it, I mean, this was like a, you know, it was a a proper book tour, you know, the publicist was with us the whole time, and she's tremendous, and I mean, I was there, I, I, I basically, I was there, I took a nap and then like I ate lunch and then I was on TV, you know. Wow. Um, and what was it like to be on French TV? Like walk us in. Well, I was speaking in English at that point, but I, I did a live radio show that was in French and I had a translator um, who was sat by me and whispered in my ear during the broad, you know, during the broadcast. And, uh, you know, the, the guy who was hosting the show, would, you know, he's looking at me around his table and it's very, very difficult when someone's looking at you and talking to you to not look at them. But I, ha- I felt I had to not, because I speak French just well enough to know what he was saying a little bit, and I had to actually not listen to him at all or look at him in order to be able to do it. It was very hard uh, to do it with the translator. Um, and then you think that, you know, all I'm doing is talking about my book, and there are, you know, there are diplomats who are, you know, <laughs> negotiating war treaties in the same way that I'm doing that. You know, <laughs> it comes through terrifying. Um, but I did speak French a little bit. I, I, we, we had this, this, uh, in French, they're called blagueur. They put the extra U in there and it looks really fancy. Uh, <laughs> so it was like, basically uh, what it amounted to was a book club, which I'd never done a book club before in the United States. And, uh, you know, I went and there was like maybe 20 people there and they had all read the book or most of them had. And we wound up just talking about the book and I'm talking in French as best as I can. And my editor, Philippe, 
was there and he, you know, he would translate if I needed to say something more complicated than I could express, which was often. Um, and I thought to myself, this is so cool. Like here, I'm finally doing a book club and yet and I'm, <laughs> talk French. It was like, it was very, it was very bizarre. Um, and so were you in Paris? I mean, where, where were you at? I was in Paris and then we were in Lyon at this, uh, at the, uh, Cata Pilar festival, uh, which is Pilar is French for like noir because in French noir is black, you know? Uh, so they sort of interpreted it as a thriller and I was there at this, uh, you know, basically this book, book fair and I was on some panels and that was really fun too. It was fun to get out of Paris and do other things. And, you know, I met a couple other American writers there, which was cool. And, um, but basically, the whole the whole thing just blew my mind. I mean, I just wasn't expecting it to be the way that it was, and in a in a good way, you know. I just I just got treated much better than I expected, and um, you know, I don't I don't have the numbers yet, but I know that the book has sold. Uh, I, I think it's safe to say many more copies in France than it than it has in the United States, which makes me one of those one of those guys that's more popular in in France than he is in his own country. Which is, <laughs> you know, as a writer, really, I mean, you know, that's pretty cool, right? <laughs> sure, take it. So yeah. now with uh, Father Mucker, uh, w- you know, what are your hopes? Like, what would be the ideal scenario for Father Mucker? I want, you know, on like Colbert at the beginning of the show where he has those words that fly by and there's one that changes every time. I want to see the word Father Mucker on that screen. That's my greatest hope for it. <laughs> you could probably make <laughs> no, that No, but seriously, happen. I, you know, I would, I would like, I would like to, I think that, you know, when you're looking at writing as a career, all you're really trying to do and all you're hoping for is to, is to sort of advance um, and move up a level, for want of a better word. I mean, I had this sort of view of, of it before I had a book to come out that, you know, it was just basically there were writers who didn't have books out and there were writers who were. And, and, you know, once you were inside the door, you were inside the door, and that was it. And, of course, it doesn't work that way. It's not how it is. Once you're inside, you know, once you get past that one initial uh, uh, hoop, there's still many more hoops. And, 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 you know, just because you have a book out doesn't mean that, that uh, you know, you're going to go have drinks with Stephen King or whatever. You know, it just there, there's just there's levels. Of he doesn't things. drink anyway, so you know, right? That's yeah, not going to happen. Right, 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 right. Well, we could have coffee, but uh, <laughs> um, you know, so you're just thinking to yourself, well, you know, I have the one book. I was I was fortunate enough to, that they gave me a, another shot at it with the second book, and you know, you want the second book to do well enough that you can you can have the third book, and by the time you know, maybe the third book comes out that the, you know, that the papers and, 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 you know, the New York Times and the New Yorker start paying attention to you, um, you know, enough to, to acknowledge your existence. And, uh, you know, obviously you hope that, that a lot of people like it and, and a lot of people buy it, um, you know, and, and, and from a, you know, a purely uh, business sense. But I think personally I, I want people to like it because I think it's a, you know, I think it's it's basically the best book that I can do, the, which is also a nice feeling. Um, and I, I think that the first book was was good. I'm happy with how it turned out, but I think that this book is basically this is this is as good as I have. You know, so if people don't like it or if they don't, uh, you know, they don't respond to it. At least I know that that this was this was uh, you know as fast as I could throw the ball. You know, sure. I'm, basically I'm on the mound and I'm saying here's my best stuff. Here's my fastball. Hit it if you can, you know, and uh, and it's good. It's a good feeling to be able to be to be out there and and uh, you know with something that you're really proud of as a as a work. Um, 
So, you know, again, not to malign the first book, but I think that this one is just, it's a different, you know, it, it's, it's trying to accomplish something different anyway. You know, it's sort of quote unquote bigger, whatever that means. Well, and who's uh, the, who's the ideal reader? Like who would, who for father mucker, like, can you think of some? can you think of a profile of who the ideal reader would be? Well, anybody that has kids, you know, would be the ideal reader. Um, you know, literally anybody Teen that, moms. that has, uh, yeah, sure. Why not? Um, no. <laughs> um, but I think that there's, you know, there's a shared sort of thing. I think people, and so far based on, on, you know, the way that my friends and, and other early readers have responded to it. I mean, there is this, this way that, that, that parents of little kids are and the way that they think and the way that they feel and, and, and the way that the day goes on that hasn't quite been captured in, 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 in quite this way. I hope anyway, um, and you know, and that people will respond to, and that's that's what I'm going for. Um, you know, that, that's what you're trying to do when you're writing something, anyway, is try to connect with, with uh, you know, at the risk of sounding like a pretentious dick talking now. But you know, you really just want to connect with people. You want to you want to share your experience in the hopes that somebody else can can benefit from it. Um, and, and and you know, and by benefit, I mean simply by nodding and saying, I know how that feels. You know, I'm really glad that somebody else felt felt that way too. Um, you know, so that's ultimately what what I hope. I hope that I hope that people like it, and I hope that they like it for that reason. Um, you know, and time will tell. You know, uh, but you know, I, I, like I say, I'm I'm I, I feel good about the book. I feel good about the the product. You know, I feel good about the writing, and and uh, um, you know, if people want to not like it, then that's, of course, their prerogative, but um, at least I know that I did my best, as well, dorky sure. as that sounds. Well, sure. Well, uh, it's been great talking with you, man. I wish you all the best of luck with it. The book is called Father Mucker. It's from Harper Paperbacks. It's available as of October 4th. Go and get it. Greg, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll be in touch, and uh, good luck out there on the road with your readings and everything else. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. There you have it. That's it. That's the show. That's Greg Oliar. Good guy. Go get his book. Go visit him on the web at www.fathermucker.com or follow him on the Twitter at Greg Oliar. That's at G-R-E-G-O-L-E-A-R. Yeah, and if you have any comments about this show, if you have any thoughts, if you have things you want to tell me, if you have stories you want to tell me about your life, if you have criticisms or praise, whatever you have, you can email me, uh, and the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Uh, if you really like the show, if you want to support it, if you want to support the cause, if you want to support book culture, if you want to perpetuate uh, the, the work, the, the environment that allows for authors to do this work, uh, what am I trying to say? If you like books... Why don't you go join the TNB Book Club? That's the official book club of The Nervous Breakdown over at thenervousbreakdown.com. It's $9.99 a month. For $9.99 a month, you get a book delivered to your door every 30 days. It helps us keep the lights on. It helps me continue to be able to do this show. It's just $9.99 a month. It's less than the cost of a book. If you're feeling generous, if you have the money, go ahead and do that. It's a good thing to do. Uh, I think that's pretty much it. Uh, what else? Oh, yeah. Go get Megan Boyle's poetry collection. Go get Michael Earl Craig's poetry. Read some stuff. Read Greg's book. Read books. Read books in general. Read books that make you laugh while wincing, etc. 